Hey everybody, Magnus here. Look, before I get into today's episode and, you know, goings on with this all about image mini series that I'm working my way through, there's actually something I want to talk to you guys about. And I guess really as much as anything, this is sort of a mea culpa. This is really something that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while now, but just fucking haven't. Basically, and we're, this is many months ago now, but basically, I want to say it was like six months ago or something like that, I, I did this series called Babs Loves Dick. And it was basically a cheeky title for a mega series that was all about Batgirl and Robin, or perhaps more specifically, Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. And I guess the impetus for all of that came from this Batman reading project that I kind of fell bass-ackwards into, where I guess I was just living under a rock or something for all those years. I had no idea that there was that romantic subplot that was going on between uh, Dick and Babs. I had no idea that was a thing until I started up on this Batman reading project, and then that kind of led off into this tangent. And anyway, you can listen to those episodes if you're so inclined. That's really neither here nor there. Where the rubber meets the road on this is one of you out there apparently listened to those shows, the Babs Loves Dick mega series, and apparently that got to you. So let me just take this opportunity to publicly apologize to Gene Hendricks, that is Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendricks, the host of the Hammer Strikes podcast, basically saying that I saw this entry on your blog not very long after you first posted it. And I don't call it procrastination, I guess, but I just, it's like I just fucking never got around to talking about this publicly. But I do think there is something here that's worth saying. Now, yes, it did occur to me to actually post a comment on your blog. But number one, it, it this was published so long ago. I mean, guys, we're talking like this was this thing is dated Thursday, July the 21st, 2016, right? So do the math. That was almost exactly six months ago, right? And so I think maybe the ship has kind of sailed on that a little bit. So I guess that's maybe part of the issue here. But the other part is, you know, Gene, I really do like you on a personal level. I do like your shows. I like your blog. And so I thought if I can do something to kind of shine a light on your blog, then I'm going to do it, you know, so because I think people need to read your blog. It's really pretty much that simple. So anyway, this is thehammerstrikes.com. For those of you who don't know, thehammerstrikes.com. This was, like I say, published back in July 20, uh, back on July 21st, 2016. And Gene Gene, the podcasting machine writes, inspired by a recent episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I've dug out my old Nightwing comics and have started a reread. While I by no means have a complete run, I have a rather large chunk, especially of the Dixon-McDaniel story team. Doing this has reminded me just why Nightwing is my favorite member of the Bat family. I'm going to put this blog on pause here and just say, you know, Gene, I know that you're going to go on to justify why exactly you love uh, Nightwing so much. But I got to tell you, dude, you talk about throwing me a curveball here. I didn't see this coming, you know? Basically, I, I guess I, I, I kind of developed this prejudice whereby I sort of assumed that everybody who 
is into Batman on any level whatsoever, their favorite member of the Batman family is probably going to be Tim Drake. And the only reason for that is because my favorite member of the Batman family is Tim is a Tim Drake. And the idea of somebody's favorite being Nightwing, while completely valid, kind of threw me for a loop. So just like right from the start, dude, you're you're just kind of throwing me off the trail here. You know, I wasn't expecting that. Not saying it's invalid. I'm just saying I wasn't expecting that. That's all I'm saying. So anyway. And obviously, very interesting. And I think kind of very good choice as well. But we'll circle back to that, I think. So anyway, to get back into the blog, Gene writes, that's right, not Batman. Not Actually, I'm going to put this back on pause here and, and just say, dude, to me, the Batman family is actually something else. I mean, Batman is kind of the head of the family, I suppose. But when I say Batman family, I mean, there's. it's kind of like it's implied that there's the word extended in parentheses in there. So to me, it's Batman's extended family. Basically, everybody who's not Batman, that's the family, right? So anyway, I'm I, clearly, that is not your definition, but, you know... And, well, whatever, I'll just fucking, like I say, circle back to it, but I just want to just put that little preface in there and just say that, you know, I've always thought that the family was basically characters other than Batman. So, anyway, so that's that. To get back into the blog, though, Gene writes, that's right, not Batman, not Robin, not even Dick Grayson as Robin. No, my favorite member of the Bat family is Nightwing, specifically the Nightwing as written by Chuck Dixon and illustrated by Scott McDaniel and Carl Story. I'm going to put this blog back on pause and say, you know, Gene, there are certain, as I'm, of all people, I'm sure you probably know, there are creative teams out there that I don't know what happens, but there's like some sort of magic alchemy that takes place where they are basically definitive, you know? You don't need to go beyond their work on this character. They're the ones that nailed it. And in relation to Nightwing, I kind of have to agree with you. I mean, to me, it's all about Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel and Carl's story. I mean, those are... If Nightwing could ever be said to have the Beatles working for him, working on his stories... To me, it's good. Yeah, it comes down to Dixon, McDaniel, and story. There's some kind of like fourth element that takes on, or rather, that takes over when they're working on the book. And the art is somehow a little bit better than standard issue Scott McDaniel and Carl's story. The writing is just that extra little bit better than standard issue Chuck Dixon. I don't know what it is, but there's something about Nightwing that brings out the best in all of them, you know? And that's not really to take anything away from the other creative talent that have worked on Nightwing over the years. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we all have favorites. And when push comes to shove, I, I pretty much have to agree with you. Yeah. Nightwing, as written by Chuck Dixon and illustrated by Scott McDaniel and Carl Story, to me, that is, well, that's definitive, you know? So yeah, I'm right there with you. I agree. But to get back into the blog, Gene writes, that I like the character under the pen of Dixon is a no-brainer. He's one of the writers that gets these characters, and it's a joy to read any of his work. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, yeah, dude, I'm doing a reread of that 
Punisher Warzone series that Chuck Dixon worked on in the 90s, like 1992, 93, and through there. And one of the things that's reminded me of is the fact that I like Chuck Dixon as a writer, you know? I mean, the Punisher is one of those characters that, generally speaking, I can take or leave. And usually I'll leave. But if he's writing something, if he sees some kind of potential to it, that's enough to get me to give it another look. Does that make sense? The fact that it's it's almost like, in, in a weird kind of way, it, it's sort of like a, an endorsement of what this character is and what his stories are all about. If Chuck Dixon is interested, that's usually a good indication that I should be interested too. So anyway, get back into the blog. Gene writes, having Dick go to another city where he doesn't have the Gotham support systems is wonderful. Not only that, we get some great supporting characters and Dick is able to finally find his own way. What doesn't jive is that I like the art so much. Those that know me understand that I don't like impressionistic or wonky art. Which is true, actually. I find that, no, that's... I, I don't think I've heard Gene say a whole lot of really, like, positive things about people who have, like, crazy line styles. So, yeah, I... Gene, here once again, you're throwing me a curveball, man. I would never have guessed this in a thousand years. I would have thought that your heart, on some level probably would have always belonged to George Perez when it comes to Nightwing. And so for you to basically outright say that, no, Scott McDaniel is is your man, I did not see that coming. So, anywho, get back into the blog, though, Gene writes, Not surprising when my first ever comic was drawn by Sal Buscema, a master. Even Walt Simonson's art, which is a bit more stylized, is still workable. McDaniel's art, however with its odd sight lines and movable anatomy, doesn't fit into my normal box. However, it just works for Nightwing. I'm putting the blog back on pause and say, dude, halla freaking luya. Amen. Because I'm going to try to find a like a constructive way to say this, but I'm going to, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there. There are very few times when I really give a damn about Nightwing from like a visual standpoint. You know, there are very few artists out there that have done such a bang-up job that it even really stands out to me. I mean, I guess if you move away from like obvious things like Scott McDaniel or from uh, George Perez, the only time I've ever seen somebody's version of Nightwing and thought, man, that looks fucking cool, is when Tom Grummet drew Nightwing. And I'm one of those people... Call me old-fashioned, but I'm one of those people who believes that, really, Tom Grummet can do very little wrong. And, you know, the simple fact of the matter is Nightwing had a couple of, I think, kind of notable guest appearances in that Robin comic from, golly, what was it, like 1993, 94, around there? You know, when he first got his own solo book. And it's one of those things that, I mean, it, it's logical you, you, when you... When you say it, I think it makes sense. But, you know, going into the book, I guess I didn't really expect other characters besides Robin to to have a whole lot of prominence to it. So I guess I'd never really, like, mentally girded myself for what a Tom Grummet iteration of Batman might look like 
or Tom Grummet's Alfred, Tom Grummet's Gotham City, or as it relates to this blog entry, Tom Grummet's Nightwing. But there's something about Tom Grummet's version of Nightwing that it made me kind of want to see what Tom Grummet would do with a Nightwing solo title. Now, to the best of my knowledge, that never happened. But, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, apart from Scott McDaniel, who is like number one with a bullet, the only other guy, and this is my point, the only other artist who ever came along with an interesting take on Nightwing that I'd like to see a little bit more of was Tom Grummet. So there's a point in there somewhere. I just have no idea what it is. But anyway, to circle back to Scott McDaniel... You know, the fact is there there are just not very many artists out there that do things the way that Scott McDaniel does. You know, I mean I I like his work on Daredevil. It's okay, but to me he made a decision and damned if I could tell you when. It might have actually been not very long after he left Daredevil, but he made a decision with his art like which direction did he want to go in? And man, talk about going in the right direction because that I can remember, and I reserve the right to be wrong on this, but as far as I can remember, there just aren't very many other artists out there that can do what Scott McDaniel does with those, you know, weird-looking shadows and that, you know, strange-looking uh, anatomy and those just fucked-up crazy angles and stuff that he loves and just make his art just kind of sing for me. There are not very many other artists out there that can do that. I guess, like, maybe, like, Joe Casada, But otherwise... Scott McDaniel's kind of in a, he's in a class all by himself in a lot of ways. So I'm right there with you. Now, the difference is I'm kind of a, a fan of his art. I think I like him best on something Batman related, you know, but in general, I think he's, he belongs in somewhere in, I guess, the Batman's creative stable. There's just something about his art that just lends itself to that. You know, just that... I mean, I'd actually kind of like to see him maybe come back to Daredevil at some point. You know, now that he's really got a solid style going and maybe... I, I don't want to say, like, put right what once went wrong, but I just don't think his existing Daredevil work is necessarily on a par with virtually anything that he ever did for Nightwing, you know? So that's actually something I've wanted for a long time. I have no idea how likely that is. But it's something that I'd like to see, nevertheless. And I'm rambling on here, so I'm going to get back into the get back into the uh, blog here. Gene writes, it, however, it just works for Nightwing. For for Nightwing, it kind of works for Robin, and I don't think it works for Superman or Batman at all. But it's just a perfect fit for Nightwing. The Flash, Spider-Man, multiple images is terrific, and he actually has in his blog post a. Uh, a, a, a piece of Scott McDaniel art that shows, I guess, sort of visually and perhaps literally illustrates his point. So check that out. The Flash Spider-Man multiple images is terrific and allows you to see the grace at which Dick moves through his city. It's just some great stuff. So the writing and art on this series is great, but why Nightwing? Well, that's pretty simple. Here you have one of the second generation heroes who has grown into his own man. Unlike Wally West, who is my favorite Flash, Dick didn't take over for his mentor. He stopped being Robin and, after a bit of a search, found his own path. 
He's obviously inspired by Batman still, but also by all the other heroes he's worked with. Nightwing isn't Batman 2.0, and he isn't Robin in long pants. He's his own hero who's grown into this role. That, and his ability to smile and joke, is why I like Nightwing the best. And that's the end of the blog. And let me just say, you know, to me, if the Bat family is basically supposed to include Batman, then Gene, I'm going to have to disagree with you just a tiny bit. And basically say that Batman is probably my favorite member of the Batman family. But if the Batman family extends basically outside of Batman and does not include him by himself, then to me, all roads lead back to Tim Drake as Robin. But having said all of that, let me just say that I've always had a tremendous affection for for Nightwing. And just like on a personal level, I think one of the things that it, it, that it comes down to, at least for me, is this idea of being one's own person. I mean, I grew up in a house where I had two older brothers who just in life had kind of made their own impressions of things, you know, and had kind of made names for themselves. And so I, when I was growing up and going to school and all of that, frequently had teachers that expected me to, in some way or another, be what they had been and there are positive and perhaps not so positive manifestations of all of that but not nevertheless is what i grew up with and so the idea of dick grayson's struggle to be his own person you know not to be basically not to grow up to be batman jr that's something that i can i could kind of identify with in myself because that was what I was kind of living with on some level day to day. And that's one of the things that's always kind of drawn me back to Nightwing. You know, like people who are only children, I I sometimes think, I mean, there's a blessing and there's a curse with that, I think. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a there's a struggle for one's own personal identity that I I don't know that they can completely relate to, you know. So anyway... It's apropos of nothing. I just wanted to throw all of that out there. Also, like I say, I just want to apologize for Gene. I'm sorry for not talking about this a lot sooner. I actually planned uh, to talk about this blog post that you wrote. I planned to actually talk about that back in August, but then shit came crashing down around my ears. And it just, for whatever reason, it just never happened. So, mea culpa. I apologize. I wanted to shine a light on your blog a lot sooner than this, but like I say, just fucking never happened, right? So, humblest apologies, and uh, I'll try to never let this happen again, I promise. So, anyway, hopefully this sort of balances out the ledger a little bit. So, anyway, I think that's pretty much it for me uh, for right now, so here's the theme song. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, they could be more than art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round nobody cares basketball year-round nobody cares 
But on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks, just as always. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And I guess, speaking of movies, you know, originally I was thinking about talking about one particular movie, sort of has its own sort of, sort of episode, but... What I came to understand is that this isn't really the type of thing that I can make an entire episode about, and so I decided I'm just going to gab about it a little bit here. A couple of days ago, I rewatched a movie called Jumper. And for those of you who don't know, this came out back in uh, 2008 and stars, of all people, Hayden Christensen. And... The pitch behind this movie is that there are some people in the world who have the ability to just teleport from one place to another, right? And this is a cause of conflict, or consternation perhaps is the word, with another group of people who call themselves paladins. And so the movie is basically Hayden Christensen, I guess, first of all, discovering his power then it's him being pursued by the paladins and then because of the fact that you know fucking it's hollywood of course there's this retarded love story that's going on and so on and so forth it's just really that part of the movie i honestly could uh, take or leave then hayden christensen sort of has a little bit of a showdown of sorts with one of the other jumpers that exists in the world then he has a showdown of sorts, again, with the Paladins, and then he has more of like a denouement with his own mother, and then he and his girlfriend vanish into the sunset, I suppose. And I guess as far as movies go, this is one of those things that you might want to call uh, a near miss. Does that make sense? Sometimes in life, a movie comes along, and... It's tough to put into words. It's, you can tell that there's a good movie 
lurking around somewhere in the basic concept of of this finished product but this finished product just isn't it isn't everything that it could be put it that way and that's kind of where I at least was coming from with jumper right and I guess to give you an example of what I'm talking about here the paladins right they there really is there really is such a group right and I'm just gonna read you a little bit from the wiki page uh, here it says the paladins sometimes known as the 12 peers were the foremost warriors of Charlemagne's court according to the literary cycle known as the matter of France they first appear in the early Chanson de Geest such as the Song of Roland where they represent Christian valor against uh, the Saracen hordes inside Europe and that's French right Chanson de Geest uh, basically what that means is uh, like song of deeds or song of actions or heroic actions right and so it's not exactly the same thing as an epic in a literary sense but kind of right so hopefully that'll make sense anyway get back into the wiki page the paladins and their uh, associated exploits are largely later fictional inventions with some basis in historical frankish retainers of the 8th century and events such as the Battle of Roncevaux Pass in 778 and the confrontation of the Frankish Empire with Umayyad al-Andalus in the Marca Hispanica. I guess what I'm driving at here is that there really is, or was, such a group called Paladins, right? They really did exist, and yes, their, their actual exploits may have been fictionalized but there is a truth to this if not quite literal fact and one of the most famous works related to the paladins like i said a second ago is the chanson de geist the song of roland right well samuel l jackson is in this movie and he plays a character called roland and he is a he is a paladin right and so there is a sort of a literary quality to this and one of the things that i just couldn't escape as I was watching this movie is this sensation that I'm watching a movie that's based upon a comic book but the comic book never actually existed does that make sense and imagine my surprise when after I finished the movie I checked out the wiki page and hey looky here this is actually based upon a a book like a, a prose novel right I did not know that. And so, <clears throat> just a second, I'm going to get a, a, a sip off of my Dr. Pepper here. That way I won't have to keep clearing my throat all through this podcast. Very good. So, there's a, I can't escape the this notion that there's a good concept wrapped up inside of jumper as a film that for whatever reason the final product it's as though it just misses the target somewhat you know there's something missing from this film and it actually took me a while to put it into words and i'm not saying this is the only thing that's missing 
but there's no finality to the movie, right? David, played by Hayden Christensen, like I say, he has this showdown of sorts with Griffin, one of the other uh, jumpers, and his name, uh, he's played by uh, this guy called Jamie Bell, right? They basically, they disagree, not so much over principle, but over means of how to do something, and so they duke it out with each other, right? And basically, David gets in a cheap shot, which it's not enough to kill Griffin, but it is enough to immobilize him for the time being so that David can go off and do things the way he thinks they need to be done. Fine. But nothing has been resolved here. Makes sense? So anyway, David then zips back to Millie's apartment, his girlfriend in the movie, his love interest, right? Played by Rachel Bilson. And zips back to her apartment and then immediately starts throwing with this group of like five paladins who are hanging around her place. Dukes it out with all of them. And it takes considerable effort on on his part, but he basically jumps her apartment from the building in which it's located into a lake, right? And then uh, that's basically enough to free him from his bonds. And then he then jumps the apartment to the Ann Arbor Public Library, right? And there's there are actually story purposes, you know, of all places you could possibly jump. Why the Ann Arbor Public Library? Well, there are reasons for that. So, and as he does so, obviously he takes Roland along for the ride. So he, Millie, and Roland all get jumped to the Ann Arbor Public Library. <clears throat> and... Rather than take Roland out, like, for good, or have any kind of a resolution there, David basically jumps him to the Grand Canyon, and then he dumps him there. That's it, you know? Nothing's decided, nothing's fixed, nothing's resolved. Neither of them are really any the worse for wear, considering what all's happened. And... Nothing is really put to bed, so to speak, with this aspect of the movie and, and, and the conflicts and the characters and whatnot and everything that's going on. Then from there, David tracks down his biological mother, and he meets a stepsister that we never even knew he had. Or not a stepsister, I'm sorry, a half-sister that we never even knew he had prior to this moment in the movie. And by the way, this is played, I forget her name, but the girl from Twilight, I think is, is the other thing that she, the other like big thing that she was in. I cannot remember that actress's name to save my life. <clears throat> but the basic consensus is that like nobody seems to like her all that much. So whatever. I mean, she seemed okay in her little cameo appearance in this movie. But anyway, I get the... I get the idea this must have been like pre-Twilight or something because it's a pretty small part and you would think that these days she's more of like a star. She wouldn't do like a small little cameo appearance like this anymore. So anyway, yeah, so the Twilight girl and she's David's half-sister. We had no fucking clue that she even existed in the movie prior to this moment. 
She fetches her mom, played by the lovely and fetching Diane Lane. And then David and Diane Lane, they kind of have, again, nothing really gets resolved here. You know, they basically just sort of touch base with one another, but nothing, nothing is really decided, you know, in their, in their conversation. They're basically, we find out that they're in a sort of a stalemate with, with each other and they have been throughout the entire movie, but nothing with that stalemate is really advanced or resolved or anything like that. We just find out, Hey, there's been a stalemate this entire time. So, and there's that. And on top of all of that, it came out just a little bit earlier in the movie that Diane Lane is a paladin herself, and she never told Roland, you know, the supposed leader of the group, that, hey, my son is a jumper. And so you get the idea, she's in for a world of shit once Roland finally does catch up with her, except fuck all happens with that in this movie. We don't see, we don't even see Roland and Diane Lane have a scene together, you know? And like I say, I mean, the movie basically establishes all of these, all of these conflicts and these themes and whatnot, but nothing really gets decided when it's all said and done, right? Nothing's really resolved by the end of the movie, right? And, and that's the point, you know, like if you watch just to kind of, uh, compare this with, let me think something like Jaws, right? In the movie Jaws, there's a pretty straightforward conflict. Shark comes to the beach, shark eats people. And so Brody has to find a way <clears throat> to shut the shark down, right? He's got to find a way to kill the shark. And the only way he can really think to do that is to enlist the help of a complete fucking lunatic and go out to sea on this guy's boat. That's literally the best idea that he's, that he's able to come up with, right? And then the movie ends with Brody fulfilling his dramatic mandate of, of killing the fucking shark, right? That's what needs to happen, right? And so... That's what he does. And then, of course, he and Hooper, they swim back to the beach, et cetera, et cetera. Roll credits. Everybody lives happily ever after because there are no sequels to Jaws. I don't care what anybody says. So there you have it. And so there's a sense of completion and resolution when credits roll for Jaws, just to kind of throw out an example, that is completely absent from Jumper, right? It's not a cliffhanger that they end on. I want to be clear on that. But there's no resolution to it either. Star Wars ended on a point of resolution, right? <clears throat> you had this moment where Luke basically, on the one hand, fulfilled his dreams of going off and having adventures and all of this stuff. He also saved the day, and he provided Han Solo an opportunity to turn around and do the right thing. You know, these people are going to die if you don't if you don't get involved and help us blow up the fucking Death Star, right? So Luke achieves his ambitions. Han Solo begins finding something akin to redemption. Princess Leia, yeah, she's lost her home world, but at least for the time being, 
the Rebel Alliance is safe, you know. These characters have all been through something and accomplished something by the end of Star Wars. Does that make sense? Meanwhile, Empire ends with so much bullshit that's just left on the table. I mean, Luke has, uh, he's got his hand cut off. He just found out uh, Vader's his father. Leia is in love with Han Solo, but tough luck for her because Han Solo just got frozen in carbonite and carried off by Boba Fett. <clears throat> Lando has just lost his, we can assume he's lost the uh, Tabana gas mining facility on, on Bespin. And so he's got really nothing to do, at least in the short term, except throw in with the rebels and do his part to get Han Solo out of jeopardy. I mean, Lando basically had to make the best of a really shitty situation. And so we find out, I think it's implied, but it, we find out at the end of Empire Strikes Back, you know, he's not a bad guy. He was just a guy that was forced into a shitty situation, that's all. But he's trying to make it right. That's the point, right? And so there's no sense of resolution to very much of anything related to the Empire Strikes Back when credits roll for that. But there is a sense of growth and, I would say, some amount of fulfillment. Again, not necessarily resolution, but fulfillment, right? Yoda made, Yoda and Nobi won both, actually. They both made certain predictions that, to varying degrees, ended up coming to pass because Luke wasn't actually finished with his training before he zipped off to have his little showdown with Darth Vader. Meanwhile, Han Solo's entire dramatic thrust throughout the entire run of The Empire Strikes Back is once we get back to the to the rendezvous point with all the other rebels, I'm out of here. You know, John, uh, uh, Jabba the Hutt has got a price on my head and people are starting to come gunning for me. I got to get the hell out of Dodge. And in the end, he does get the hell out of Dodge, but not necessarily for the reasons he was originally planning. So there's fulfillment, but there is not resolution, right? That is a very... I think very clever and very effective way of ending the middle chapter of something that you already know for a fact to be a trilogy. All of these things are absent from Jumper. There is no resolution. There is no fulfillment. In a weird kind of way, this almost feels like act one of a really fucking long movie. And there are there, it, it, the, the impression I get is that there are so many story threads here that are on the table that are just being kind of left there. And not because of any sort of logical reason or anything like that, but it's, it's as though the filmmakers just fucking, they don't know how to end this movie. You know what? There's a possibility that this is exactly the way that the book upon which the movie is based ends. But, I mean, it, it, assuming that's right, that's a kind of shitty ending, guys. You need to come up with something better. Something that allows David, you know, Hayden Christensen, allows him to achieve something, gain something, win something, you know? Something needs to be resolved by the, by, by the time credits roll, and nothing, nothing really is. I mean, he faces a clear choice in the movie, but nothing is really resolved from all of the conflicts that come out of the choices that he makes. That is one of the problems. And I can't help thinking that another problem this movie has is that it's, 
from beginning to end, it lasts 88 minutes, which in movie terms, that's kind of anemic. I mean, that's a pretty fucking short movie. And yet, pretty much from the moment David teams up with Griffin, the movie seems like it's running long, even though it's not running long. It hasn't even gone. It's barely been going something like an hour by that point. But for some reason, there's some third element in the movie that should be there, but isn't, right? You have David trying to reconnect with Millie and then losing it. You have David on the run from the Paladins and barely staying a step ahead of him. You've got David teaming up with Griffin, but that's at best an uneasy alliance, right? And I don't know why, but you would think that three elements like that, four if you count David's conflict with his father, I don't because that, that only really comes down to like two or three scenes. There are like three separate plot threads that this movie is developing. That should be enough. I mean, all you really need for a lot of movies in most cases is basically a plot, a subplot, and then more of like a B plot, right? And Jumper is technically following the rules of writing for the screen, but somehow, maybe it's just the lack of balance to everything. There's just this, again, the sense that whenever David and Griffin are fighting each other, it's like the audience is ready for the movie to be over. Even though the movie's got at least another 10 or so minutes before it's actually finished, right? It's just very strange and very, it's a very weird way to structure a movie. And apparently I'm not the only one who feels this way because this movie didn't exactly do crazy business at the box office, you know, all things considered. And so there was an expectation that because of the amount of bullshit that was left on the table, once credits roll for this movie, there's there's enough bullshit here to make a couple of sequels, right? Probably another fucking trilogy, because that's something that nobody seems to have gotten enough of just yet. So, the other thing, though, is that you can see possibilities in the movie where this whole jump concept can be... Well, if you think about it, what is the difference, really, between time and space? If you can teleport from one place to another, basically manipulate space according to your will, why would you be unable to bend time in a similar way? Perhaps travel back in time, or go forwards in time, etc. Who's to say? And apparently I wasn't the only one who was thinking in those directions because it says on the wiki page that sequels basically were going to play around with the concept of jumping from one planet to another, or jumping through time, etc. And, I don't know, that was, I think, a, a, a very clever idea, and it kind of, on some level, kind of saddens me that we're never going to see a sequel to this, because I, I have to believe that the sequels would have delivered on some of the dramatic possibilities that were inherent to this concept, and yet this first and really only Jumper movie didn't completely deliver on it, you know? 
So, I don't know. It's never going to happen, obviously, but it, it, I just couldn't escape the, I don't know, the, the possibility that a sequel has, you know, put it that way. So, one of the other things, though, that I'll say is that this movie is directed by Doug Lyman, and I don't know. I mean, I've always associated, you know, Doug Lyman with that kind of shaky, handheld type of camera that you see, I think, to kind of an obnoxious degree in The Bourne Identity. Well, you see a fair amount of that here, but this is one of those movies where the director has a kind of signature style that he shoots for and that he's kind of famous for. But... It somehow that style gets subsumed whenever he makes I don't know some movie or another right this is not exactly the most Doug Lyman looking movie you've ever heard about I mean Mr. and Mrs. Smith yeah I can believe that the same guy who directed The Born Identity directed Mr. and Mrs. Smith you know I, that's an easy thing for me to believe it you know but this jumper I don't know this is just lacking that what the French call a certain I don't know what and this is just one of the great missed opportunities in all of cinema history if anybody asks me which nobody did so here I am I'm supposed to talk about Supreme and I just wanted to actually just chat a little bit about Jumper but apparently I got more to say about Jumper than I was originally expecting so what I'm going to do is take a break, and I'll be right back after these messages. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something.
Yep, yep, yep. Alright, I'm back now, and finally ready to start talking about some some Supreme comics. Now, for those of you who don't know, there's a little bit of backstory that needs to be worked through here. I'm going to be talking about Supreme number 41, which is a kind of, sort of, reimagining of Supreme. Supreme is a superhero that was part of, well, it's not, I guess, accurate to say image comics, specifically extreme comics. This was basically a Rob Liefeld character, and he was more or less intended to be the Superman of the, I don't know, the Youngblood universe, you know, their sort of corner of at the time, Image Comics was kind of trying to... Or there was a time, anyway, when Image Comics was trying to do a sort of a shared universe, Marvel style, of all of the different uh, Image characters and whatnot. And what they eventually came to realize is, that's just not gonna work. These characters don't really fit all that well together. So you could sort of think of... Extreme Comics is kind of being their own universe. Todd McFarlane's comics is being their own universe. Mark Silvestri's comics that, and they're being their own universe. So on and so forth, right? And so for Extreme Studios, in a weird fucked up Rob Liefeldy type of way, Supreme was basically the Superman of his universe or his corner of the universe depending on how you care to define such a thing because god knows the image comics people never really got around to defining all of that stuff at that time themselves and i would call supreme prior to the advent of alan moore a sort of generic image comics type of character you know if there was a a, a generic Image Comics superhero, I would say Supreme is a pretty good candidate for that title. Hopefully that all makes sense. But the point came when, I guess to, to pay the bills, Alan Moore ended up going to work for Image Comics. And honestly, it's not like he had very many options to choose from. He... He'd pretty much sworn to himself that he was never going to work for DC Comics ever again because of how they treated him and he believes how he was misled concerning ownership of Watchmen. Now, I'm not taking sides on that. I'm just saying that at that time was his gripe with, with DC Comics. He believed he'd been kind of rooked out of ownership of out of Watchmen and he was understandably not very happy about that again not taking sides i'm just saying those are the statements that he made in public about the matter well he had scarcely more love for marvel comics so if he wanted to go to work for a successful comics company and be able to make a living and support himself pretty much his only real option anymore was going to be image comics and there's a sense in which he's probably a better fit for Image Comics anyway, 
or Image Comics at that time, because of the fact that Image, well, at that time, Image Comics really lived up to their name. They weren't they weren't exactly famous for for writing. They were more well known for art, and there's a very strong argument. Many people believe in this that Image Comics pretty much rose and fell on the quality of the artwork. They could give a damn about writing. What matters is that the pages look cool. And as long as the pages look cool, the story can suck out loud, and that's totally okay, because that's not really what Image Comics is in business to do. So the thinking goes that if you were to throw, um, shall we say, a more imaginative writer into the mix, things might be a little bit more bearable over at Image Comics. Now, my personal opinion on the matter is Image Comics in the early to mid-90s is pretty underrated in terms of how good the writing actually was. The assumption that a lot of people want to make is that Extreme Studios was pretty much the norm for all of Image Comics, and that's just not true. I personally believe that Gen 13 was a really well-written series. Well, mini-series and then an ongoing series. I also believe The Max, that was a very well-written series. And let's see, what else? Spawn, even when it was written by Todd McFarlane, I wouldn't say that the writing was quite to the same level as the art when it comes to Spawn, as I've said, but I don't think that Spawn is the is the root canal to read that a lot of people make it out to be. No, it's not the greatest comic that's ever been written. There's really no doubts about that. But it's not it's not horrible, is what I'm saying. I actually think that there are instances in Spawn where it's actually a pretty well-written comic, you know? There came a point, I think, when Todd McFarlane kind of went up his own ass a little bit with that comic. and But whatever. This isn't really a show about Spawn. It's a show about Supreme. Anyway, so as I say, whatever happened, happened, and Alan Moore was recruited into the, I guess, the Image Comics stable, and eventually found himself scripting Supreme. Now, as I say, there's a very strong argument that Supreme was probably the most creatively fertile of the various Image Comics characters for Alan Moore to work on, simply because of He's kind of a Superman-ish type of character already, insofar as his power levels are concerned. And he's quite clearly derivative of Superman, and Alan Moore's love and affection for Superman, or his supposed love and affection for Superman, is a pretty well-known commodity among a lot of Alan Moore fans. And so there's a sense in which it's it's actually quite logical for him to gravitate to Supreme, all right? It's just, it's one of those things that even at the time these comics were coming out, I remember thinking that this is a pretty logical decision for him to be making under the circumstances, right? So, and in typical Alan Moore fashion, it became pretty apparent he wasn't really continuing Supreme 
the way the character had been written up to that time, he was basically going to write Alan Moore's Supreme. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute, but it's worth kind of setting the table on that right now so that everything else I say will hopefully make a little bit more sense. But the exact issue that we're talking about, this is Supreme, Volume 2, Number 41, and the cover date, well, technically it doesn't actually have a cover date, but the date listed in the indicia is August of 1996. So there you go. And this is, uh, the title page alone pretty much makes it clear that this is going to be a little bit of a sort of a throwback type of comic, more Silver Agey. And the title page says, At last, the comic you've dreamed about is here. The Supreme Story of the Year. Proudly presented by Alan Moore, writer, Joe Bennett, penciler, Norm Rapmond, inker, flashback sequence by Keith Giffen, penciler, Al Gordon, inker, Ruben Rood, colorist, IHOC, color separator, Todd Klein, letterer, Brent Brown, editorial assistant, Eric Stevenson, editor, Supreme, created by Rob Liefeld, and this entire issue is in memoriam, Kurt Swan, 1920 to 1996. So pretty much up front, this is very... This title page is very seriously Silver Age influenced. And the dedication to Kurt Swan by itself kind of suggests the the probability that this is going to be very Silver Age-y in leanings already. But we're about to find out just how much so in just a few moments. And this is actually kind of an easy issue to summarize. Basically, Supreme returns to Earth... And really, the entire Earth, both from outer space and then up close, it just looks ten different kinds of fucked up. It's Supreme himself actually uh, compares it to a double exposed photograph, since it looks to be two of everything. And then, on top of all of that, and by the way, we're talking about part one, the double exposure doom. The, uh, it's, when he lands in the city... Basically, what he sees is there are there are two skylines with two different types of buildings uh, visible. Um, the people on the street, it's like there are two versions of them. There are there's a version of them dressed in the modern day, and then there's a version of of those same people standing right beside them, wearing more vintage period type of throwback outfits, sort of from the 1940s. It looks like or 1930s. And so Supreme is basically just standing there wondering just what the fuck is going on when he's when, when he then is in, sort of intercepted by people who are wearing Supreme type of outfits themselves. You know, the white bodysuits and the red capes and all that stuff. And so he has no idea what the fuck is going on. And so because of the fact that this is the 90s, he goes on the attack and he ends up getting taken down by, of all things, a cartoon character called Squeak the Supreme Mouse. And he's pretty much taken down, he comes to, and these other Supreme types of characters eventually reason with Supreme, and they say, one of them says, 
We have to get you to the supremacy. Fast! So this sort of boom tube looking thing opens up and Supreme and these four other characters jump through it and they're taken. This leads us into part two, which is the land of a thousand Supremes. They find themselves in this sort of golden crusted city and I don't even know what to call this architectural style. It's it's something more than art deco. It's kind of got this art deco-y, this futuristic art deco-y look to it, mixed with that sort of, I don't know, that kind of uh, stripped classicism type of design that you associate with the fascists and the communists and all of those sort of, you know, 20, uh, 20th century totalitarian movements and all of that kind of stuff. And so it's... a uh, I guess from an architectural standpoint, it is a little bit of a cornucopia that we're looking at here with all of these sort of divergent styles and whatnot, you know, because um, like I say, you've got this deco or neo deco with the stripped classicism or classicism or whatever, whatever the fuck. Um, there's just a bunch of different shit that's going on here. And if this looks a little bit hodgepodge, well, there's a reason for that. It's because it is, in fact, a little bit hodgepodge and kind of patched together and all of that stuff. And it's this sort of floating structure that's encased, suspended in literal nothing, just an empty whiteness. So the whole thing is just... It, on the one hand, it's really neat to look at, but it actually, just the architectural style of it raises quite a lot of questions. Let's be real. So... Supreme and these these other Supremes are noticed and then waved at by literally hundreds of other Supremes of different configurations and styles and designs and all of this stuff. And as they pass along through the city, they even run into Macro Supreme, who's basically a Supreme the size of a fucking building. And he makes a sort of cryptic comment. Uh, comment. He says, let us hope that his tenure, meaning... Supreme, let us hope that his tenure is longer than mine own. One short month with not even a second appearance. Good luck, my friend. May you prove durable. And beware of Darius Dax. Which leaves Supreme wondering, just who the fuck is Darius Dax? And his flying companion, who has this sort of 80s look to him, says, Darius Dax? Look, don't even worry about it. You may not even have a Darius Dax in your continuity. Look, there's Supermarcher's Palace up ahead. They'll be waiting for us. And, of course, we change subjects here. And it's right around here that the story of this thing starts getting a, a little bit of clarification. The very first Supreme, he's called Original Supreme, basically comes out and tells his story. He says that he's from Little Haven, USA, born in 1920. And then he goes on to say, and that's the first 1920, by the way. There have been a lot in 1920s. But one day, when I was 10, out walking my pet dog, I, tum I uh, stumbled on this, this hidden cave out in the woods. Inside, I found a belt buckle of strange white metal. It had magic powers. If I just rubbed it, I became supreme. I could leap over buildings, lift a car, or bounce live ammo off my chest. So, posing as Ethan Crane, reporter, I fought evil in Omega City until 1941, 
which is when my whole world disappeared. I find myself alone in an infinity of blank white space. I was in limbo. This may sound crazy, but it was just like I'd been written out alongside everything connected with me. Floating there in limbo was the daily, the daily record building where I'd worked in small chunks of Little Haven. I was alone until 1945 when the next Supreme to be uh, revised turned up. Soon others came, more powerful than me with, support, with their supporting casts. Still, we couldn't accomplish much until His Majesty arrived in, in 68. Well, and this is the, uh, this more Silver Age looking Supreme says, Well, as last son of the exploded planet Supran, I was supremely powerful. Also, when I, when I was revised in 1968, the entire planet Supran came to limbo with me. And that's when we start getting a little bit of a little bit of a clarification on this. Basically, Supreme the Fifth is the Supreme of the 1960s, the Silver Dynasty. They call him. Um, he's basically the Supreme Supreme. And now it needs to be said, just to kind of put all of this stuff on pause, in case it wasn't clear already. Like I said before. Supreme is already sort of a Superman archetype. And it's at this point that it becomes clear that Alan Moore is basically turning Supreme away from being just a Superman archetype, and he's becoming more of a Superman pastiche. And at the same time he's doing all of that, he's... Basically what we're seeing here is kind of meta on top of meta on top of meta because supreme as we know him is basically the latest in a long line of supremes that have existed in this sort of meta reality and what we're seeing here this supreme city this is a kind of sort of valhalla of where supremes go these different iterations of supreme where they go when they're basically written out of existence, right? So what we have is, in effect, a sort of um, early-onset Golden Age Superman, the very first Superman. This is the Superman that he can only leap an eighth of a mile. He can lift some heavy weights. His skin can't be penetrated by anything less than an, than an exploding shell. You know, that type is in here. And then we start getting a little bit more well into the Golden Age, where Superman is a lot more powerful now. He, and, and basically, all of the evolution that Superman undertook, starting from 1938 going right on through to what was at the time, the modern day, as it was in 1996, and all of these different permutations that, that come in between. And it stands to reason, when you think about it, that the Silver Age Superman, or Silver Age Supreme, as it were, would be kind of king of the uh, of the whole place. Number one, because he's he's the most powerful, but I think it's pretty clear, just based on the guy's work, that Alan Moore considers the Golden Age Superman, or sorry, the Silver Age Superman, Alan Moore considers the Silver Age Superman to be definitive. And there's a really strong argument 
that he's got a point there. And, you know, we don't need to get, I guess, too much into that other than to say that, you know, I think he's he's got an argument to that. You know, a lot of the qualities and I would say stereotypes that a lot of people have about Superman, it's funny how they tend to be the most true of the Golden Age. You know, or I keep saying Golden Age, sorry. Silver Age. Anyway, so for some reason, it, it kind of defies rational analysis, but for some reason, it really works for me that basically the Silver Age Superman is kind of the master of his domain. He's the guy that calls all the shots here. I mean, there's a sense in which, yeah, he's kind of first among equals, but I don't know. He's he's basically the guy, you know? He's He's the head of this different reality. And we have a sort of a, a Mighty Mouse type of archetype. But it's not really just limited to Superman. I mean, they've got Sister Supreme, who's this kind of jive-talking, 70s-style black chick, and she's got an afro, and, you know, she's got, you know, the attitude and all that. And, you know, a bunch of other Supremes are running around as well. And as, for lack of a better way of saying it, the Alan Moore Supreme has taken on this sort of a sort of a walking tour of this Supreme Valhalla, the supremacy it's called, we start seeing more and more and more of, I guess, Superman comics tropes. I mean, one of them is Sirius, the stallion Supreme, who volunteers to pull this sort of chariot um, in the parade that welcomes the Alan Moore Supreme into existence, which pretty much leads us into part three, the world made new. And from here, the Alan Moore Supreme, I'm just going to call him uh, Supreme Prime, for lack of a better way to put it, because I don't know what the fuck else to call it. But um, he meets yet more Superman uh, pastiches. He meets uh, Supreme's white and gold, who they call themselves imaginary versions, but they're, when you think about it, no less real than anyone else after their revision. And when you think about it, I mean, that kind of reminds, at least me, of that famous introduction to Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where it says this is an imaginary story. Aren't they all? Well, all of these characters are imaginary. So how can one be imaginary within imaginary? I mean, why is one worthy of less canonization than anything else? Or so Alan Moore, I suppose, would have it. Anyway, um, then the gold Supreme says, we hope you'll make your Earth a utopia just like we did ours. And again, I mean, this kind of speaks to this being a pastiche of all things Superman has ever been. Likewise, there's a Supreme that has a lion's head. There's a there's another Supreme who's got this oversized sort of melon-shaped head. And he's, you know, the, the smartest guy there. You know, he's the guy that supposedly has all of the answers and whatnot. And can best describe all of this, although even he doesn't completely understand everything. Just a sec while I have a sip off of my Dr. Pepper here. Anyway, 
so on and so on and so on. And so from there, Supreme, uh, Supreme Prime remarks on the fact that, you know, this place, this superhero Valhalla, this supremacy, this feels like where I belong. And originals, or sorry, um, the, uh, the Silver Age Supreme says, hey man, you know what? You're welcome to stay. No one's going to think any less of you if you decide you don't want to go back home. Of course, that leaves Earth without a protector, but you know, dude, it's cool. You can stay here if you want. But Supreme Prime says, you know what? No, fuck it. I mean, you guys are calling me Supreme. I've obviously got a lot that I need to live up to. I'm going back. But it is interesting, though, that the uh, temptation to stay there, it was a real thing. And he did he did somewhat struggle with that. Anyway, so he no, he no sooner walks through the portal than he comes to and finds himself walking through a doorway in an office building, and he's wearing uh, not his Supreme outfit, you understand. Now he's just wearing civvies. Um, and he's also got on a pair of glasses. He gets intercepted by Mr. Tate and Mr. Tate's assistant, somebody anyway, and just in the course of conversation, it comes out that they all work at Dazzle Comics, and his name, Ethan Crane, he works on a comic book that's called Omni-Man, and Mr. Tate basically makes fun of, yeah, he basically makes fun of Ethan a, a little bit, just kind of gently kidding him, saying, you know what, you artists, you always got your head in the clouds, uh... And basically, it's just really helpful expository dialogue just to kind of set the scene and start giving us our first glimpse of what this Supreme's day-to-day reality is going to be like. Unlike his predecessors, it seems, he's not going to be a newspaper reporter. Instead, he's going to be a comic book artist at Dazzle Comics. So, as all that stuff is going on, he fishes his wallet out of his pocket, and he looks at his driver's license, he sees that his name is Ethan Crane, and he lives in a city called Omegopolis. So anyway, he gets home, starts checking through his apartment, finds his supreme outfit hanging in the closet, and then he also finds a picture of himself and what appears to be his parents standing outside the Little Haven General Store. Now, it needs to be emphasized that this is a supreme who knows basically nothing about himself and basically the concept that we're working with here is that the reason he doesn't know who he is is because he's only just come into existence his his history hasn't been written in full just yet and so that's why he he doesn't know tons and tons and tons about who he is and where he comes from or who these people are in his life and all of that stuff and so because of the fact that none of this stuff has been filled in he's sort of on a little bit of a journey of self-discovery somewhat. And like I say, I mean, this is sort of meta on top of meta on top of meta here. And this is, on the one hand, I think this is an extremely creative and extremely innovative way of doing a Superman pastiche type of story. But I've seen people say that this type of thing 
is what they've wanted from Superman all along. And that's kind of where I have to get off the bus that they're driving. Because I really do like the imagination of, say, the Silver Age. And especially, I would say, All-Star Superman. And those Silver Age of those Silver Agey and Bronze Agey types of settings and whatnot. But something that's just this fucking meta, I don't know why, but there's something about this that seems incredibly artificial to me, you know? There's something about this that, I don't want to say that it's it's the writer talking down to the reader, because I don't think he is. This is a story that Honestly, you kind of have to be a comic book geek of like two or three magnitudes to really get. So I'm not criticizing on, on, on that aspect, but this just seems a little too, I don't know, breaking the fourth wall a bit that on some level he knows he's a fictional character. You know, that's the part about this that kind of bothers me because the logical conclusion for this is that all of these characters have to eventually realize that we that they are in fact fictional characters and on the one hand i'm very comfortable with these things being sort of science fantasies and sort of ideals to which people should aspire i don't want them to be self-aware in that sense does that make sense so on the one hand you know i definitely give it up to alan moore for coming up with i think a very creative and interesting way to to tell this story but in terms of, you know, wanting this for Superman? No, you know, not really. So, like I say, I mean, I get what they're saying, but, you know, I can only... I don't think that this approach ultimately would be beneficial for Superman. So, anyway, now, there's so much, honestly, to say about, you know, the writing and all of this stuff that it's almost... It's weird how you can kind of overlook the art in an Alan Moore comic. And the reason for that is because I think Alan Moore, I don't know. It's not that he's unconcerned with art, because I think he is. But I always got the impression that he wants the writing to be center stage in an Alan Moore comic. And I don't think he means that, you know, necessarily from a, a sense of egotism or anything like that. He just wants the focus to be on the story, on the characters, on the universe, you know, etc. And my impression is that he thinks overly flashy art can get in the way of all of that. And I got to tell you, Joe Bennett, he's not the flashiest artist in the biz, but he's probably one of the most flashy artists that Alan Moore had worked with up, up to this point. He's just got this very... For the time, for the 90s, you know, this very sort of modern style. But he's capable of of drawing, you know, cartoon characters like Squeak. And he can also draw very Golden Age-y looking type of characters. Very Joe Shustery or John Sakella-y type of Golden Age characters. He's just... He, he gets a chance to really stretch his legs, is what I'm saying. You know, this is a pretty dynamic art style that that he's working with and he's a very dynamic artist so that i actually found very it's just it's just fun to read you know i mean if you're there's an entire school of thought out there that says hair is one of the hardest things to draw in comics but if you can do that well 
it's easy to visually distinguish one character from everybody else. And at least in Joe Bennett's case, I believe it because all of the characters, especially in uh, this, the uh, supremacy, they all have different hairstyles from one another. And, you know, Supreme Prime kind of has this sort of spiky hairstyle. Whereas the, I don't know, the, uh, the Silver Age Supreme has got a little bit more of a traditional Superman spit curl going. So on and so forth. And this is just really, I think, effective art. You know, it, it doesn't call too much attention to itself. But it's not all due respect to, oh golly, what is that guy's name? He drew Watchmen, not Dave Cockrum. Dave Gibbons. Now, I like Dave Gibbons, but he's not exactly the world's, I don't know, at least to me, he's not the most enticing artist in the world. I mean, I like him, like his work, I think he's he's solid, definitely love his work on Watchmen, but he's not, he's just, he, he's not, like I say, at least for my money, a marquee name, you know, at least as far as artists go, like. Like Phil Jimenez, right? To me, that that's a little bit of a marquee name. I mean, I'm interested. I really enjoy Phil Jimenez's work on The Flash. And in a weird kind of way, I mean, I don't want to go so far as to say he's the spiritual successor to Carmine Infantino or anything like that. But I can see the argument. You know, when other people make that argument, I can, I can kind of see where they're coming from, you know? And as it goes for Joe Bennett, I think he's got an art style that I think really lends itself to the type of story that Alan Moore is telling here. And I don't know, just overall, this is honestly Supreme number 41. This is a comic that is the start of, I think a really, I would, I would go so far as to say a really fun and really, and kind of amazing um, comic book story. I'm not exactly the world's biggest Alan Moore fan by any means, but this is nevertheless the start of a really fun story and it's on the one hand fun and on the other hand it does kind of give you a just a little bit of food for thought you know what with the 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 meta on top of meta on top of meta the varying layers and degrees of reality and whatnot and the fact that when you think about it this is all fake and the characters on some level have got to be aware of that this is all fiction so this is i think a really creative way of making this character who was just kind of a, a a generic grim and gritty 1990s kind of superhero character giving him his own unique voice his own unique presence in comics that he lacked before but it's kind of ironic in that it's not unique it's basically superman but less so you know and honestly I think if this comic had come out any sooner than it did, it might have actually fallen on deaf ears. But this came at a time when DC was... They were basically working their way, or about to to get going on the... What was the uh, Superman Blue and Superman Red... Uh, storyline uh, from the Burn Age era, the one from the 90s with the electric Superman and all of that stuff. And 
I don't know why, but there's a there's this tendency among comic book fans to believe that that was a jump the shark moment for Superman in the 90s. It was I get the idea that there are fans out there who believe that change was supposed to be permanent and as with Ben Riley, the only reason that the one true Superman was restored is because of fan backlash. And unlike Ben Riley, no, that's not the case. Ben Riley was brought back because of fan back, or rather, Ben Riley was, uh, Peter Parker was brought back because of fan backlash. The original Superman was brought back because fucking the story ended and it was time to bring back the original Superman. That's it. You know, but there's this, I don't know why, but there's this, temptation people have to want to credit the return of Superman as he was to the fans. And it's like they prevented something. And so usually what a lot of people say is that Supreme is more Superman than Superman was in the mid to late nineties. And fuck you. No, he wasn't. But uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, this is a very, even though this is intended to be sort of the modern-day Supreme, you really can't escape the Silver Age influence that Alan Moore is bringing uh, here with Supreme. And I don't mean just the alternate realities and all of these sorts of things. I mean the fact that even apart from this issue, Supreme number 41, the Silver Age influence is a pretty fucking tough thing to escape in, in Alan Moore's Supreme. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing, I'm simply saying that it's a true thing. And so when people say that Supreme is more Superman than Superman was in the mid to late 90s, to me what it comes down to is what are you looking for from Superman? And I don't know. I mean, it that really is a matter of opinion. And I would say priority. It really, Like I say, I mean, what do you want Superman to be? And if the Silver Age is just more in line with your views of Superman, I can see where Supreme is a kind of appealing character to you. But what I like about Supreme is not just the fact that he's a kind of, sort of, Silver Age type of Superman, in a way, maybe, from a certain point of view. The thing that kind of plays for me is the fact that Alan Moore can do kind of Silver Age Superman-isms with Supreme, but he's not necessarily beholden to the Silver Age Superman, you know? He can go in different directions and do other things if he wants to. And this, to kind of tie it back with something that I said at the top of this show, or this segment, this is, Supreme is kind of a, kind of a typical Alan Moore sort of trick, where the character that you thought you knew is not in fact the character that you knew. It's actually some, there's basically a twist. And what this allows is more to disregard whatever parts of continuity that he has no use for. And this is one of the gripes that I have with Alan Moore, is that anytime he works with characters that have any kind of long and extensive history, he usually finds a way to ignore, if not completely fucking undo, that history. I mean, Swamp Thing is a pretty famous example of this is not the character you thought you were reading this entire time. And, you know, the truth is is that it's all a lie, you know, or what have you. And it's like, this is kind of his stock sort of move. Like, this is his shtick. And, you know, I mean, maybe it's just that 
I've read enough Alan Moore comics that by the time I finally got around to reading Supreme, this little stunt had kind of worn out its welcome. But, I don't know. It's, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'd probably have a deeper appreciation for Supreme if this wasn't just kind of stock Alan Moore type of trickery where, you know, he basically modifies continuity because it doesn't fit with what he wants to do. So, of course, it's all got to change. And, I don't know. That's just, that's something that's always kind of bothered me. On the other hand, though, if ever a character needed it, there's a strong argument that Supreme did. So, it's not an altogether bad thing. It's just, I don't know. It, it, that doesn't somehow make it less annoying, I guess is what I'm saying. So, anyway. And that, I think, is pretty much that for this segment and indeed for this episode now as it goes for me i'm not really too sure when i'm going to come back to supreme i just know that i'm going to but i'm not really sure when i'm going to have a chance to because of the fact that you know i've got a lot of stuff planned in the honestly for the next couple of weeks at the very least i've got a i've got a pretty solid idea of what i want to do so i'm not really sure when i'll have a chance to come back and talk about some more uh, some more Supreme comics, but I simply know that I'm going to. And now that I've kind of gotten, I can't really say the anger, but, you know, the caveats about Supreme, now that I've kind of gotten those things out of the way, I do think I'm going to be in a, in a little bit better position to just enjoy the stories that are coming down the pipeline and not have to one, and not have to think so much about what this all means about who Alan Moore is as a writer. So... Hopefully that all makes sense. But anyway, so that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world. Comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, three.
Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. 
The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.